0: It must have been a terrible shock to the prophet Hosea the first time that he came home and discovered that his wife, Gomer, was gone. He had to have a sense that it was possible. I mean, after all, he did pursue and marry a prostitute. I mean, it was at God's command, of course. But when your marriage has a rough beginning, you have to wonder if your spouse will wander. To be fair, God had warned him that this would happen. But as we read in the Old Testament book of Hosea, by the time we get to chapter 2, Gomer has already left Hosea for good. And there's nothing romantic about her behavior. Today, we would just simply call her a sex addict. She's not having some clandestine affair or a secret rendezvous in a discreet location. It's not just another man she's in love with. It's multiple men in brief moments of insignificance. It's fake love, it's temporary pleasure, it's personal power that her actions produce. She was as indiscreet as a person Could be. She said, I'm off to see my lovers. They'll wine and dine me. They'll dress and caress me. They'll perfume and adorn me. Can you imagine Hosea's hurt, his frustration? I mean, one infidelity would wound any partner. But a repeat offender like Gomer. Hosea had to be crushed this had to kill this man who loved her so deeply was Gomer even willing to try to make the marriage work he had to sit at home with three children and wonder did Hosea have any hope that Gomer would ever change well good morning everybody So if you missed last week, we're in the second week of a four-part series in the book of Hosea. It's a 14-chapter book in the Old Testament, and it has a lot to teach us about our relationship with God. And if you read the story, it is pretty clear that Gomer, Hosea's wife, by this point has no desire to be in any kind of a relationship with Hosea. She's returned to her previous life of prostitution. She's not looking back. And so Hosea exercises the only option left to him at this point. He says, now bring charges against your mother, for she's no longer my wife, and I am no longer her husband. He's not officially filing for divorce now. He's simply firing a warning shot. He's saying to Gomer, you're not acting like my wife. So I'm going to give you what you're asking for. I'm going to stop acting like your husband. And what we have to remember as we look at this tragic story is to think in two tracks. Because Hosea's life as a prophet, as a teacher, is an object lesson. His marriage has been arranged by God to teach us about our relationship with him. And in the marriage... Hosea plays the part of God, and we play the part of Gomer, the unfaithful spouse. Through Hosea's and Gomer's marriage, God is clearly pulling back the curtain. He's showing his heart towards us, and essentially he's saying, my people have betrayed me the same way Gomer is betraying Hosea. They prefer to have spiritual affairs rather than honoring their commitment." And like any devoted lover, God doesn't want to take second place to anything in our lives. As I read the Bible, what astounds me as much as God's grace is his patience with us. It's been roughly 650 years since the people of Israel were freed from slavery in Egypt to the point where Hosea is now delivering this message and in that time, Israel's played the unfaithful, wandering spouse, having one spiritual affair after the other. When times are bad, they run to God for help, and He saves them. And as soon as the times are good again, they forget about God. After, time after time, they seek counterfeit gods when times are good, and they offer their thanks for all the good things in life. This happens over and over again for 650 years years. And God's been patient. He has waited for his bride to wake up and to realize the loving faithfulness of her husband, God, and to make the same kind of commitment to him that he has to her. And it's never happened. And so Hosea writes some very powerful passages about Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness. In one of them God says to Israel, she doesn't realize that it was me who gave her everything she has. The grain, the new wine, the olive oil. I even gave her silver and gold. But she has given all my gifts to Baal. Now, Baal was the most important god of the Canaanites, the people who inhabited the land with the Israelites, the ones they were supposed to kick out when they were given the land by God after coming back from slavery in Egypt. Baal was the God who provided, according to the Canaanites, provided all their food, all their shelter, all their clothing. And so, since times were good, the Israelites worshipped Baal in hopes he would bring more good times, better crops, more money, bigger houses, bigger buildings. But in reality, it was God who provided the food, the wine, the prosperity for his people, and they took all of those good things and sacrificed them to Baal to say thank thank you It'd be kind of like your spouse or your significant other giving you a beautiful diamond necklace and earrings to mark a special occasion like your 25th or your 50th or your first if they're an overachiever and for your gratitude you put on your best little black dress snap on that jewelry And go down to the local bar and use them to arrange a hookup. That's the scandalous picture God's painting here. And literally, in Hosea 2.13, one of the most tragic verses in all of Scripture, God says, She burned incense to her images of Baal. She put on her earrings and jewels and went out to look for her lovers, but forgot all about me. How is it possible... To forget someone who loves you that much, so deeply, so passionately. It's easier than you might think. I don't think I've ever confessed this to you before. I don't like to tell the same story twice. So I look through all my message notes from the three years I've been teaching here. I don't think I've ever confessed this to you. And once I do, you will never forget it and you'll never forgive me. I promise you. It happened more than 20 years ago. More than twenty years ago, got it? How long ago? More than 20 years. Thank you. Uh, it was a beautiful, sunny July morning. Uh, our entire family woke up. Our children were little, and we were going water skiing. A family that we were friends with had invited us to go water skiing with them. So we woke up. Uh, we had all been looking forward to the day. All of us have been looking forward to this Saturday morning, all of us, more than 20 years ago. But for some particular reason, one person who will go nameless in our family on that Saturday morning was incredibly grumpy that day. I won't tell you who it was. I will just simply refer to that person in this story as my wife. <laughs> She was moving very slowly, in a very grumpy fashion, moving so slowly that I think she was going to make us late. And I was starting to doubt if she even wanted to go. And so the kids were in a great mood, I was in a great mood, and there was just this huge divide between her mood and her pace and our mood and our pace. And she was actually behaving like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, if you know that character, And so being the sensitive, caring husband that I am, I eventually asked her in a very sensitive, caring tone, what's wrong with you? Now, I guarantee you there is not a man in the room that sees a problem with that question. (laughs) She turned around and faced me, tears running down her face, and said, I'm sorry, I'm acting this way. But it's my birthday, and no one's even wished me a happy birthday. Oh, stop. <laughs> Everyone had forgotten. Her entire family had forgotten. Her favorite sister had forgotten. My family had forgotten. All our friends had forgotten. This was how long ago? Yeah, thanks. I'm not feeling love. There was no internet, so there was no Facebook, no one to wish her happy birthday, and none of that mattered. I had forgotten, okay? I was a dead man. Now, I also can guarantee you that there is not a woman in this room who feels any sympathy for me at this point. (laughs) Ever been there? Ever forgotten something important? We forget stuff all the time. We forget our car keys, we forget our glasses, we forget our lunch, we forget lunch appointments... We go to the grocery store to buy things off a list. And remember, we've forgotten the list on the counter at home. We forget stuff, don't we? We can even forget God in our lives. And when we forget about God in our lives, it's not that we wake up one morning and make the intentional decision to forget God. You know, it's not like we make a conscious decision to do that. It's more of a gradual thing over time that happens. We get busy with work, with school, with family, with good things in our lives. Sometimes we can even get so busy with things at church that we forget about God. And it happens so gradually. It happens so imperceptibly that God just seems to slip out of the place of importance that he once had in our lives. Now, it's not that God wants us to take on a monastic lifestyle, you know, where we just go away somewhere and there's no one else around us and all we do is focus on God 24 7. You know, we don't have conversations, we live in silence, our only conversation, that's not what he's after. But he wants to be woven into the fabric of our lives, to be included in every moment of our day. And we sometimes end up so far away from that that we don't even think about him. I think we also have the tendency sometimes to take things for granted in our lives. And that plays into this as well. Remember when the economy was good and we used to get pay raises? Yeah? Remember those days? They were good, weren't they? That you'd get a pay raise. It felt great for a month or two, you know? You had all this new money in your budget, and it was fun. And then after three, four months, it just kind of got incorporated in. And you just had a new way to live, and you didn't think about the raise anymore. It was just there, and then you were spending over the raise and waiting for the next one. Or you got a new car, and for the first few weeks or months, I mean, there were all kinds of rules around the car. Nobody eats in the car, right? Right? You wash the car every few days. You were wiping fingerprints off the door handles and keeping that car clean. And after a little bit of time, there were just as many fast food wrappers and crunched up Cheetos on the floorboard as there were with the old car. You start taking things for granted over time. Many times we do that in our relationship with God. We start taking Him for granted as well. He blesses us. He provides for us. At first, we're grateful but then we start taking those things for granted. We take it in stride. We just move forward with life. Things are going great. And so like the Israelites, we just take it for granted. And so our prayers start to become a little more sporadic, a little random. We start reading our Bible a little less. And before long, we notice that that Bible we were reading so often, we can kind of write our name in the dust on it. And that could be a problem. We can't remember the last meaningful spiritual insight we had. Some thought about God or our spiritual growth that really moved us, shaped us, touched us. Now we know God's still there for us. We know he still loves us. But in those times, I can't help wonder if we're just on the verge of God saying, you've forgotten all about me. I don't ever want to be in that place. I've been there before. I don't want to go back. And I'm guessing you don't either. So how do we avoid it? How do we stay focused in our relationship with God in the middle of the wonderful good things in our life? How do we stay connected in God and not let anything take his place in our life? Just a couple of thoughts. One thing I've found helpful in my life is to just do a gut check. Periodically, now, I'm not talking about standing in front of the mirror, sucking in your gut and, you know, seeing how you look. I'm talking about this emotional, mental gut check to stop and examine where your heart is, to think about your motives, your purpose, your ambitions in life, the kind of self-assessment where you figure out what you're chasing and why. And... Is God a part of that? Is pursuing a deeper relationship with God a part of what you're chasing in your life? Sometimes I do this gut check on purpose. I'll set aside a block of time, a few hours a day, where I'll just think about my relationship with God and all the relationships in my life. And then sometimes, to be perfectly honest, the circumstances in my life force me to do a gut check. It could be a crisis in my life. It could be a major life change, good or bad, that makes me do a gut check. I went through a major gut check when I lost my job five years ago. The pressures of the job that I had been in had turned me into someone that I didn't care for. Someone I didn't think God desired me to be. And I didn't realize that until I lost my job. I was moving too fast. I was working too hard to really take time to stop and think. Truthfully, I was moving too fast to give God the time and the space to speak to my heart and convict me about who I was becoming. And what I discovered in that space when I did a gut check was there was an edge in my conversations every conversation that violated some core values i'd held for a long time in my life i realized i'd been avoiding a prompting in my life from god for 2 years something he wanted me to do losing my job <laughs> for me it turned out to be a wake up call that had to do with a lot more than just my vocation Now, we don't have to wait for something like that, a major life change, a crisis, a turning point. We don't have to wait for something like that to have the chance to stop and think and do a gut check. We can pause and consider what's happening between us and God more regularly, more consistently. We can do it every day if we want to. We can carve out blocks of time on a weekly basis to just contemplate our relationship with God and the people we care most about. It actually was one of the purposes of the Sabbath in the Old Testament. It was to carve out one day a week where your pace isn't so frantic, where you're not doing work and you're not doing the busyness around the house and you're just reflecting on life in general, who you're becoming, what your relationships are becoming. It's one of the purposes of a regular quiet time. Yes, it's to read God's word. Yes, it's to pray. But it's also a regular time for reflection. To help us keep God at the center of our lives and our relationships. And when we do that, I've found in my own life, there's incredible peace and fulfillment that comes from that kind of a regular gut check and keeping God at the center of our lives. Another way to stay focused is to try to celebrate God's grace on a daily basis. Stop and think a minute. What are you really looking forward to in the next two months? What's going on in your life? Now, for some of you, your kids are going back to school. Uh, Some of you are excited about that. When our kids were little, uh, Connie and I would take the day off work the first day of school. Our kids growing up thought it was all about them, that we wanted to be there for them when they went to school, when they got home, so we could hear about their first day of school, and there was some truth to that. But now that my daughter's kids are in school, it hit her that it really wasn't about them. Um, We did it, uh, (laughs) to be honest, we did it as a day of celebration, and we called it the Take Back the House Day. We never told the kids that. So we'd see them off for the bus, and then we had a seven-hour date. From the moment they left until the the moment they got home, we were on a date. We went to lunch. We went to a matinee movie. We had long conversations. We we started like three weeks ahead going, what are we going to do on our take back the house day? It was a great day for us. Now, we didn't tell the kids we did this. They thought it was all about them. But we just had a great day because there's all kinds of stuff we couldn't do through the summer because the kids were home from school. We looked forward to the kids going back to school. Now I've just given you a great idea. Some of you, that's all you're going to get out of the message today, and that's fine. (laughs) We've got that we're looking forward to. Our granddaughter's birthday is this month. We have a vacation coming up in September. All kinds of things we're looking forward to. What about you? You have a birthday, a family reunion a concert by a favorite band. Maybe you're looking forward to the Bears season in the month of September. I don't know, because that's all the longer their season's going to last, by the way. (laughs) What is it you're looking forward to? And here's the reason I want you to think about that. Because I want you to ask yourself this question. Whatever it is you're looking forward to, does the joy you experience looking forward to that event how does that measure up against the joy you feel when you think about the grace of God? Think about it. Are you as excited about the grace of God as you are about that event, that activity? Now, I don't ask the question to make you feel guilt about that event. You should be excited about those things. Those are great gifts in your life. Wonderful things to celebrate. The challenge is not to feel less excitement about those. It's to raise the level of excitement we feel about the grace of God. Because it's far more exciting from an eternal perspective than these daily events or these celebrations in our life. And we should celebrate God's grace every day in our lives. Think about his blessings, his forgiveness, his provision, his protection, and we just don't notice it on a daily basis. We don't think about it. I'm as guilty as the next person. God's grace gives us something worth celebrating. Here's just one way to think about his grace. Now, if it were us, we'd think differently about forgiving somebody who returns and asks for forgiveness. You think about everything that's gone on between Hosea and Gomer. How that's an example of Israel's relationship with God and how it's supposed to teach us about our relationship with God. What would it be like if after all of our struggles in our relationship with God, if he treated us like we treat other people? Maybe we'd walk up to God to ask for forgiveness. And we'd find him sitting back in a chair with his arms crossed. And he'd just look at us. And go, really? Let me understand this. You walked away from me. You want to come back? (laughs) Now you're sorry? Really? I hope you're miserable. Ever had somebody say something like that to you? What if God responded like we did? But that's not how he responds. That's not how God works. Not even in the middle of our worst circumstances did God respond that way. To help us understand that, one of the most beautiful passages about grace in all of scripture is embedded in Hosea chapter 2 when God's talking about how, how Israel, how we wander from him. And he's talking about judgment that's coming. At the end of the chapter, he says, but but if Israel were to return, if she were to come back today and say, I'm sorry, I want to be back in this with you, God. I want you to be at the center of my life. Here's what God would do. He says, but then I'll win her back once again. I'll lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I'll return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. She'll give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from captivity in Egypt. I'll remove all weapons of war from the land, all swords and bows, so you can live unafraid in peace and safety. I'll make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love, and compassion. And I'll be faithful to you. I'll make you mine. And you'll finally know me as Lord. I don't think there's any more beautiful passage in all of Scripture that explains after all that we've done, how far we've wandered How much grace God still extends to us. How deeply he loves us. I stumbled on a story this week taken from Arthur Miller's autobiography called Time Bends. To be honest, I've never heard his name before. But he was married to Marilyn Monroe. And in his autobiography, he talks about Marilyn Monroe's slow descent into dependence on drugs, into depression, into a growing paranoia and hostility. Miller was afraid for Marilyn's life as she descended. One night, a doctor was convinced to give Marilyn one more shot so she could rest. When she finally fell asleep, Miller just sat by her bedside and watched her sleep. Later on, as he looked back on that night, he was moved to write, I found myself straining to imagine miracles. What if she were able to wake up and I was able to say to her, God loves you, darling. what if she were able to believe it? How I wished I still had my religion and she still had hers. Beneath all the layers of hurt, all the layers of addiction, there remained an awareness in his life that God's love was the one thing that could fill the void in both their lives that's the message that God is trying to get through to us in the book of Hosea it's not a message of guilt it's not a message of condemnation Hosea's intensity in this book is designed to put an exclamation point on God's love to tell us that we are imperfect people who are perfectly loved by God That we have a God who pursues us in our sin, finds us, saves us, redeems us, and then continues to pursue us whenever we wander. And if he cares this much, we know that he'll meet us at our point of greatest failing. He'll love us in our material, and he'll give us strength at the point of our greatest need. At the point when our faith is barely limping.